0: You beautiful bastards, welcome back to the Philip DeFranco Show. Buckle up, hit that like button, and let's just jump into it. Yo, the first thing that we're going to talk about today is a story and news that has people very, very divided. Like, everyone is angry or disappointed, but seemingly for two very different reasons. Right, so at the center of this story, we have a leaked video from Southwest High School in Jacksonville, North Carolina. Reportedly, this is from earlier this month. It was recorded by a student in the classroom, and you have a teacher just losing it on the students. Does anyone else want to try my authority? Because I am done playing with you idiots. You need something from me. I need nothing from you. You can go through life and live on the system, draw your paycheck on the first and the 15th from my taxes, and live just an absolute horrible life. I don't care. You can be another statistic. I don't care. That's on you. And if you don't like my language, I don't give a Notably, at one point the teacher appears to catch that student, Samaya Josie, recording this tirade, leading him to tell her to get your shit and get out. The video then goes black, but you can still hear him yelling. There's also lots of noises in the background. At one point you hear Josie telling the teacher to get out of her face before she beats his ass. The rest of the video is just kind of a screaming match until Josie leaves the room and things start to dissipate. With Josie later telling outlets that during this, the teacher also hit a golf club repeatedly on the floor next to her, grabbed her textbook, and threw it on the floor along with a desk, and adding, I don't want to go back to school. All I do is hear the cracking of the golf club. I'm having nightmares about it. what set him off? Josie said that he asked the class to put their devices away when a student said, I'm going to put my computer away before you start whining and whining. Though Josie claimed that the two had a joking relationship before this, so she didn't see it as abnormal. But whatever it was that set him off, he is now out of the school, reportedly putting in his resignation letter the following day, with the school denouncing his outburst as intolerable. However, this story has also opened up a bigger conversation, and you could even argue two separate conversations. The first involving Josie telling reporters during her interview, you he
1: was saying it was wrong. I felt like it was racially motivated. It was disrespectful. Your job is to encourage me and to push me to be the best that I could be. Um, Even though it wasn't said directly to me, it just felt like That's how you really think of us. But
0: they're specifically recalling the teacher's comments about being a statistic and living paycheck to paycheck and adding, It stuck out to me because some people assume that African-American people are on the state assistance or government assistance. So I feel like he said that because that's a normal stereotype that goes around about us as a community and it was unnecessary and uncalled for. It hurt. Right. And with that, we saw people responding on Twitter echoing that his actions were racist. But separately, especially with public reactions on Reddit threads, you had many saying, you know, this isn't about race. This is a teacher just losing it on disrespectful students. With the conversation being focused on teachers not being paid enough or having enough support from administrators to deal with disrespect and harassment, with people who claim to have been in the profession writing things like, I quit teaching after seven years because of horrible behavior, aggressive and reactive parents, and no support from administrators. Combine that with low pay and I'm surprised we have enough teachers to conduct classes. And another writing, I quit after 14 years, haven't needed therapy or antidepressants since I left. Every time I see one of these teacher caught on video doing saying XYZ posts, I feel only sympathy. Teachers are human beings with emotions who are getting pushed beyond their limits of coping. As well as comments like, I went to school in the inner city and we treated teachers like shit. Sometimes they'd react like this. Some teachers were there just to collect a paycheck, but most genuinely cared and wanted us to be better students we didn't realize it then and sadly kids don't realize today like i said there's conversation debate pushback on both of these points of view and so i want to ask you we talk about this story when you hear that clip, when you get a little more information where do you stand on this? And then in entertainment, let's talk about this conversation happening right now over overworking, health, and the lengths people might go for their followers. With this connected to massive online creator and streamer pokemane's recent comments about subathons. Which if you don't know, it's less of a YouTube thing and more of a Twitch thing. Subathons are where a creator extends the length of their stream every time they get a new subscriber, with it leading to the sort of nonstop streaming for long periods of time, with people like Ludwig going for 31 days. And while his was massive, it wasn't even the longest, because according to Dexerto, Emily CC holds the record with her ongoing stream, which she says has gone on for over 130 days now. And while many fans seem to love subathons, there are a number of creators that are starting to speak out about them, including Saikuno, kind of slamming the content of subathons, saying you hate so many end up being someone leaving a stream and saying they're sleeping and showing up to just kind of do business as usual. With Pokemon responding to this, partially agreeing with the take, but also taking more issue with how a subathon can harm streamers themselves.
1: But the other reason is like, there is no way subathons are healthy for a human being to do. And the fact that we are incentivizing it with hundreds of thousands of dollars, major clout, followers, attention. We're like, oh my God, this person has been streaming three weeks. Poggers, poggers. It's like, no, they need to like go see a doctor. <laughs> That's the point. Suffer for my pleasure. I think a little bit of that is okay, but the, the line kind of needs to be drawn at some point. And I don't really think we draw it at a good point. Like if you watch someone on stream, I don't know, choking themselves out for your entertainment, would you be like, haha, suffer for my pleasure? Like, no, right? <laughs> like some things are okay and some things aren't really. But they're
0: going on to say, this is something the creator community stays silent on, and it might just take a while until it's something popular to bring up. And when you had some agreeing, you had tons of people specifically bringing up Ludwig, saying he still managed to eat his three meals a day while on his subathon, he worked out, arguing that you can still stay healthy throughout it. Though we saw Pokemon respond to this.
1: I do think like Lud was probably one of the people who did it the best, but he had a massive support system and he had very, very specific daily habits that he upkept Which, likely, every single streamer who did it after him did not have.
0: And personally, I think that soundbite kind of hits on why I don't think this is that big of a deal. Like I've talked about many times in the past, I think creators' mental health and burnout, it's a serious thing to consider. And I think audiences' understanding and compassion for creators is at an all-time high regarding that. But when you're talking about subathons, I think that's a completely different thing, because creator burnout is usually tied to, you know, just trying to keep up with your regular output and understanding, you know, what makes sense. Not a creator deciding to do the most extreme version what they do. Every day, almost every person on this planet makes a decision to decide how much of my time and my mental health and my health in general am I going to exchange for money. And with these subathons, you have adults making a decision to do the most extreme version of that transaction. But that said, I'm not gonna shame anyone for having this debate or conversation, because I think any conversation we can have around mental health is a positive one. And for other creators that are thinking about engaging in a subathon, I think, you know, hearing concerns from other creators can be beneficial. But from that, I wanna take a second to thank the fantastic sponsor of today's show, Squarespace. You know, I've been partnering with Squarespace for years now, and I have to say, if you're getting your business off the ground, or creating a place to share your homemade goods, new favorite hobby, current obsession, or even a personal blog to get all those thoughts out of your head, no matter what it is. Is you're doing Squarespace is there to help, and it's so easy. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. And creating a beautiful website with Squarespace's all-in platform has never been so simple. It's extremely intuitive and easy to use. Plus, with their mobile-optimized websites, your content automatically adjusts, so your content looks great on any device. Plus, with Squarespace, you get access to all their marketing tools and analytics, and their award-winning customer care team via email or live chat, 24/7. So if you want to check it out, see why so many others have loved it, see if it is perfect for you. Start your free trial today over at squarespace.com/phil. And when you realize you love it, make sure you enter an offer code phil to get 10% off your first purchase. And then, like a relentless strain of orange herpes on America, Donald Trump is back in the news today. Though, unlike 90% of the time, not for something he said. Right, this time it's about the Manhattan District Attorney's criminal investigation into him and his business. Right, so the TLDR is that since 2018, prosecutors have been investigating allegations that the Trump Organization misled its accountants to inflate and deflate the value of its assets on paper, thereby getting Trump favorable deals from lenders, insurance companies, and tax collectors. And they made some progress. The DA, Cyrus Vance, took his case to the Supreme Court twice, then indicted both the Trump Organization and Trump's former CFO on tax charges, making an indictment of Trump himself look like a possibility. But all of that came to a halt after Vance's term ended in January and he was replaced by Alvin Bragg, who promptly signaled his lack of support for the case, leading to two of his top prosecutors, Mark F. Pomerantz and Kerry R. Dunn, to resign in protest. And the big news is that the New York Times has now obtained the full resignation letter of Pomerantz. And in it, he says he believes that Trump is guilty of numerous felony violations, saying his financial statements were false and he has a long history of fabricating information relating to his personal finances and lying about his assets to banks, the national media, counterparties, and many others, including the American people. And adding, the team that has been investigating Mr. Trump harbors no doubt about whether he committed crimes. He did. And then going on to say that the previous DA, Vance, had directed them to seek an indictment of Mr. Trump and other defendants as soon as reasonably possible. And closing by saying, I have worked too hard as a lawyer and for too long now to become a passive participant in what I believe to be a grave failure of justice. And so you have people wondering, why then is Bragg so hesitant to prosecute Trump? Right, according to a Times investigation of the days leading to the resignations, it was said that Bragg didn't believe he could prove Trump had intent to commit fraud. Though obviously Pomeranz makes it clear in his letter that he believes the evidence is more than enough to move forward with. So it's resulted in numerous theories of why is he being blackmailed? Is he scared? Does he have no spine? And also leading to people like Tristan Snell, a lawyer who successfully prosecuted Trump University, tweeting, Alvin Bragg could the Trump investigation for one of two reasons. One, political spinelessness, or two, a call from the feds telling him to stand down because they don't want anything getting in the way of prosecuting Trump for January 6th. I hope for number two, but I fear the answer is number one. And adding in a series of tweets things like Pomeranz is not some lightweight or an overzealous junior prosecutor. He's been a Supreme Court clerk, SDNY, federal prosecutor, including running its criminal division and a partner at one of New York City's top firms. If he thinks there's a case against Trump, everyone should listen. And going on to say in a series of tweets, I got a lot of support. I voted for Alvin Bragg, believing he'd be the veteran prosecutor we need in Manhattan. I now regret that vote. Bragg owes us either an explanation for why he shut down the Trump investigation or a resignation. Who else wants to see New York Governor Kathy Hochul reassign the Manhattan DA's criminal investigation of Trump to a different DA? I nominate Mimi Rocha. But for now, that is where we are, and we'll have to wait to see if Bragg issues some sort of response sponsor what happens from here. Then we should talk about the important news coming up before this year's midterms with the U.S. Supreme Court just giving Wisconsin Republicans a win in the state's battle to draw new state congressional districts. Right, so state Republicans have been clashing with Democratic Governor Tony Evers about how the new voting district should look, and the state Supreme Court had initially sided with Evers' version, which remained largely unchanged from previous maps, but shifted things slightly around to include a new majority black district near Milwaukee. But to be clear, even with this change, Republicans would still have a slight advantage in the state legislature and a five to three advantage in Congress. However, Republicans were not happy with that plan, obviously preferring their own map in place. And so what we saw is that the US Supreme Court's decision was unsigned, but the court disagreed with Evers' map, saying that it blatantly made a majority-minority map for black residents despite past precedent that rejected this unless there was clear evidence that black residents would be unfairly represented without it, with only Justices Sotomayor and Kagan dissenting, pointing out that the court's decision to step in on this matter was largely unprecedented as there were still other avenues for Republicans to oppose the maps in state courts. But the big question, what does this mean? Well, it's a small victory for Republicans, and lawmakers are back to the drawing board, but it's not all W's for the GOP, because in a unanimous order, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected their opposition to federal congressional maps drawn up by Evers. So we'll see another round of battles over districts in the upcoming days and weeks. But Wisconsin is hardly the only place where this is an issue. Ohio voters are still unsure about what districts they'll be in after Republican lawmakers had their redrawn maps rejected multiple times by the state Supreme Court. With the big key issue here being the primary elections there are just six weeks away. So with an election around the corner, voters don't know who's actually on the ballot and candidates are unsure who's going to be voting for them. As one Republican incumbent put it, I do a lot of doors, I do a lot of yard signs to get our message out. But right now, now we're kind of in a holding pattern to see where we shouldn't be putting these signs obviously we don't want to create further confusion to the voters And it's gotten so bad the Republican and Democratic lawmakers finally agreed to work together to get something out there before the election with them not wanting to end up like North Carolina or Maryland both of which have postponed their primaries as they try to work out their own districts And then let's talk about abortion back in the news because on Wednesday Idaho decided to be known for more than just growing potatoes and became the first state to sign a bill into law copying Texas's abortion ban from last year like Texas it prohibits abortions after six weeks drawing the line there because they claim that's where the first heartbeat happened Since at that point the embryo has been implanted in the blood vessel that will become the heart begins pulsing But the counter expert opinion is that it's not a heartbeat the way that you would imagine Saying the pulse is just a light flutter of electrical signals that it's miles and miles away from being a heart that functions How you would think it does and others like Michelle Rodriguez at scientific American arguing the practical math behind the six weeks number is absurd Pointing out that even with a predictable 28 day menstrual cycle Which one study found only about 13% of women have they would be left with maybe one or two weeks after finding out They're pregnant to get an abortion as Planned Parenthood put it that's two weeks Weeks to make a decision, find childcare, take off work, find the money to pay for the procedure. Though, on the other side, if you're opposed to abortion, that's kind of the point. Minimize access and the number of abortions. Which is why you had Idaho's Republican governor, Brad Little, saying in a letter to the president of the state Senate, I stand in solidarity with all Idahoans who seek to protect the lives of preborn babies. So similar to Texas and Oklahoma, Idaho's new law lets the father, grandparents, siblings, uncle, or aunts of the fetus sue any medical provider who performs the procedure for $20,000 within four years, which actually gave Little some reason to doubt whether the courts will uphold the law, saying, while they support the pro-life policy, in this legislation, I fear the novel civil enforcement mechanism will in short order be proven unconstitutional and unwise. But fuck it, I'm still gonna sign this thing. Though of note, in Texas, where private individuals can sue people who assist women getting abortions after six weeks, the Supreme Court did uphold that law, so I guess we'll see about Idaho. Though notably, in Idaho, there are a couple of differences. Idaho's law does allow for exceptions in the case of rape or incest. The women will have to file a police report and show it to the medical provider. And unlike Texas and Oklahoma, which permit pretty much any private individual to sue, in Idaho, it's limited to certain family. And then today marks one month of the war in Ukraine. And while Russia has devastated much of the country, taken some territory in many lives, it has failed to take over any of Ukraine's biggest cities. In fact, U.S. military officials have said that the Ukrainian counter-offensive has gained some successes, with forces actually pushing back Russian soldiers outside the capital, Kyiv. With a defense official saying that Ukrainians appear to be digging in and establishing defensive positions. And today, the Ukrainian Navy claimed that it destroyed a Russian landing ship that was docked in the Russian-occupied southern port city of Burdansk. With officials releasing photos and videos that appear to show a large ship at the port on fire, secondary explosions, and massive plumes of smoke. Which is significant because that port has been key for Russian officials to provide supplies to their troops. It also comes as Russian forces are already grappling with logistical and resupply issues, and Western assessments show Russia's forces stalling. You also yesterday had a senior NATO official telling the Washington Post that the alliance believes 7,000 to 15,000 Russian troops have been killed in the first month of the war, and NATO estimating all in all 30,000 to 40,000 Russian troops have been killed, wounded, or taken prisoner. And these losses and logjams also come as sanctions continue to wreak havoc on Russia's economy. Just today, we saw the U.S. along with G7 nations and the European Union announcing even more sanctions that target over 400 Russian individuals and entities, including all 328 members of Russia's parliament and multiple defense companies. The Allies also announcing they would launch new efforts to crack down on sanction evasions, this in part driven by worries that Russia has been finding ways to stabilize the ruble and build its currency reserves back up, with them specifically moving to limit Russia's ability to activate national reserves, including gold. U.S. officials also say Biden will announce more actions tomorrow when he meets with the European Commission president, this including an effort to send liquefied natural gas to Europe in order to reduce Russian energy dependence. And in addition to all the initiatives to undermine Russia's economy, we also saw Biden announcing that the U.S. will be doing more to assist Ukraine. With that consisting of plans for America to take in 100,000 refugees, with sources also saying the administration will donate $1 billion to aid European nations, helping to shelter those fleeing Russia. And that, coming as the U.N., now says that 3.6 million refugees have left Ukraine, and more than half the children in the country, around 4.3 million of the estimated 7.5 million, have been displaced, creating one of the largest displacements of children since World War II. And with the multi-day summit still going on, we can expect to see more announcement as President Zelensky continues to call on allies for further assistance. This including asking NATO today for unlimited military help. But where I want to wrap this up today, I want to talk about a very, very concerning trend that we've been seeing in Russia. The growing number of top military leaders seemingly missing from public view, with many raising alarm bells over reports that Russian Defense Minister Sergei Shegu, literally the face of the war, has not been seen for nearly two weeks. Though notably, the Kremlin responded to inquiries about his whereabouts today, but basically saying he's just busy, and declining to comment on reports that he was experiencing heart problems, and saying he was at a Russian Security Council meeting today. With a Russian state-owned news agency also airing an 11-second clip of Putin talking to officials on a video call and zooming in, to show Shegu on screen. But notably, the news agency literally doesn't say when the video is from, and there's no sound which would help you figure out if this was an old meeting or not. Beyond that, we've also seen reports that the chief of the general staff of the armed forces has not been seen since March 11th, the same day Shegu was also last seen, With there also being similar allegations that the head of Russia's National Guard is missing as well. And so with this, we've seen many saying these disappearances represent a scary trend, with one expert noting in a tweet, Curiously, there is no military commander but Putin for Russia's war against Ukraine, and none of the surviving Russian generals in Ukraine seem to command the others. Remember that, Hitler became commander-in-chief in in 1935. And so with this, we're seeing an increasing number of people saying what we're witnessing is possibly Putin consolidating power even more. But ultimately, that is where that story and today's show ends. Thanks for watching, I love your faces, and I'll see you next time.